Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would to open your copy of Scripture to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. We're beginning a new sermon series entitled Worship and Worldview, Intersection of Church and Culture. And we're going to begin by looking at this wonderful, uh, wonderful little book, or wonderful first chapter of the book of Daniel, and reflecting on uh, what it means to, to be engaged in a culture that isn't like us. Um, the other week, my family and I traveled, and I'm grateful for Gary Buffalo, who preached last Sunday for me, and for Vince, who covered the Wednesday previous for me. We traveled to the Southern Baptist Convention, the annual meeting, and then spent a couple of days with, uh, with Jean's family there in northern Louisiana. The first night we were there uh, with her family, we dealt with some pretty significant thunderstorms. In fact, in the northern part, about an hour above in Shreveport, there were thunderstorms with nearly 80 mile an hour sustained winds. That's not a hurricane and tornado event. That's a, that's a thunderstorm event. It's pretty significant. Dealt with a lot of power outages and we're seeing all kind of storms that are going on. And, and you've been through storms, thunderstorms, and maybe in and around a tornado, or certainly we've been through hurricanes. You know something about storms? We can't do anything at all about the storm. You and I have no ability whatsoever to change the course of a rainstorm or a windstorm or a thunderstorm or a hurricane or a tornado. It's not possible. We just have to go through it. In a recent book by Dr. Albert Moeller entitled The Gathering Storm, Dr. Moeller reflects on the storms that are coming our way in our culture or that are already here with relation to family and values and morality and all of the things that are going on in our world today. And folks, part of what we need to think about as Christians living in this world that is, I mean, ludicrous. The headlines that you read and that I read, the things that we hear about, when states are having to put laws into effect so that children don't go to drag shows, it's just, really? We need to actually have a discussion about this? This needs to be a law? The things that are going on are just crazy. So how in the world do we navigate that? What do we do as Christians in the midst of such paganism and wickedness and depravity? So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to look at worship and worldview because we need to think right and we also need to worship correctly. And we're going to use a variety of texts of Scripture that kind of give us a framework for how it is that you and I as Christians can not only navigate the world we're living in, but thrive as followers of Jesus. Our first text comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. If you will, join with me in reading a couple of verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. A couple of kind of overarching ideas I need to share with you before we go further in the text and go further in the sermon. It, it seems like we're living in a world that is, that is crazy, not sure how to navigate it, not sure what to do, not sure what values that we need to espouse, how do we figure things out. I just want to remind you that we still live in God's world. I want to remind you that our God is sovereign and in control. 
The word there forgave is the Hebrew word Natan. It literally means that God was the one that orchestrated the events of Jerusalem's punishment and exile. It means that even though Daniel and his three friends would spend the, the, the balance of their adult years in a pagan place around wickedness and depravity, trained and taught in the ways of unrighteousness and idolatry, even though all of that was going to take place in the book of Daniel's true, and that's what's going on, God was the one orchestrating the events. He is sovereign. So let me just remind you, one of the things that's going to encourage us as we look at the pages of Scripture is that our God is in control. Our obligation as Christians is to live as people of the kingdom. Not the kings of this earth, not the kings of this world, not the presidents presidents and congresses, but the one who is really in charge, and that is God who is sovereign. God who is Lord. God who is in control. Another thing at the outset that I just want to make sure we're clear on, what do I mean by worldview and what do I mean by worship? Well, worldview is very simply the way we look at the world. Everybody has a worldview. Some of our worldviews are consistent. Worldview, a worldview answers the question, where do we, the questions, where did we come from? How do we receive redemption? Where are we going? What's wrong with the world? All world, uh, religions are worldviews. People have different worldviews. But as Christians, our worldview should be decidedly biblical. God should be the one to guide what we think about what's wrong with the world, how to make the world right, how to make people right. And so part of what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we are going to look at the the text of Scripture and look at our culture from the perspective of a Christian or a biblical worldview. And I hope to help us understand that. But God isn't just interested in us thinking right. I know a lot of people that believe the right things but behave the wrong way. I know a lot of people that believe the right things, but that drift away from God. In order for us to be faithful in an unfaithful world, in order for us to be Christian in a spiritually foreign land, as Daniel was, we need to also get our worship right. There needs to be regular patterns and practices in your life and my life of worship so that we remain close and faithful to God. Why do we need that? Because our culture is trying to shape and reach and change and form our thoughts and our opinions, our desires and our behaviors in ways that are in absolute contrast and contradiction to Scripture. Let me show you what I mean. Pick up in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, And competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. What was taking place? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, he brought exiles from Jerusalem, and he picked in his mind what were the best of the best, teenage boys, to bring them into his court, to teach them, to train them, to educate them, to rename them, to reshape them, so that they would be embedded with the values of Babylon so that they could best serve the king. That's exactly what took place. That's exactly what's going on in the world in which we live today. How do we stand against that? We stand against that by remembering who we are and whose we are. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Those were the names that the, that the Hebrew, uh, that the, the, the Babylonian officials gave them. They were names that deified other gods. They were idolatrous names. The biblical names here mean something different. Daniel means God is my judge. Yahweh means God is, or Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means what is what God is, which carries with it the idea that there's no one like our God. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Those names reflect the fact that their job was to remember who they were in the midst of a culture and world that wanted to reshape them, rename them, give them a new identity, change them intrinsically. And folks, we live in a culture that is just like that. I want to remind you of some things. Number one, it may look like our culture has gone to cultural rot. It may look like things are never coming back. And I, I just want to, we may never get our culture back. I, I know part of our frustration as Christians and followers of Jesus is we would like our nation to reflect the values that you and I espouse. We would like our country to be wise stewards financially. We'd like our country to go back to the morals and the values that, that were present at our founding. Our country was founded with at least Judeo-Christian principles and, frame, and a framework. And for a period of, of uh, more than 100 years, our country generally operated inside that framework. We weren't right about everything. No country ever is. But, but what we bemoan, what we as Christians today grieve, is that's no longer our country. Our leaders are not operating in any kind of biblical framework. The values of Scripture don't guide the decisions of our politicians. And that's the land in which we live. And and I want to tell you, we may never get that back. May never change. I, I would say we should pray. We should vote. We should be engaged politically. We should do the things that are good Christian citizens should do in our land. But we may never enjoy the type of America that you were born into. That may never happen again. You know what? If it doesn't, we need to remember that that's nothing new for God's people. We need to remember that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah went off to Babylon where they were trained in the values and the principles of paganism, idolatry, and wickedness, and yet they remained faithful to God in the midst, partly because they remembered who they were and whose they were. Say, this culture really want to change us and form us and reshape us? Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, Social media, the algorithms on social media are not just designed to keep you watching the videos or keep you scrolling through the threads. They're actually designed at reshaping the way you think. They're designed to keep you hooked and keep you embedded. Politics and political discussions, whichever side you land on politically, are designed to make you think like the other side is trying to kill our country and kill everybody else. They're designed to keep us attached and shape us and reform us. Uh, it, the, the worldview of aberrant sexuality, and we'll talk about that in one of the sermons coming up, is designed to reshape and form the way we think. That's why any of you that have streaming networks, when you flip it on, then you're going to see a banner... That's the rainbow banner that talks about pride. Why do we see that all month long? Because culture and the engines of culture are trying to reshape us, change us, and change the way we think and what we value. We're seeing that all over and all throughout our culture. And sometimes they just plainly tell you what's on their mind. A particular uh, professor at at a university in Illinois, his name is Bill Savage, He addresses himself or identifies himself as a progressive secular uh, professor. He, he He is someone who does not value the things that we value. 
And he talks about this from the perspective of red and blue states, but it's the same idea and ideology of what's taking place in institutions of higher education. Here's what he said, reflecting on the fact that children in red states, or or families in red states are having more children than, than families in blue states. Here's what he writes. The children of red states will seek a higher education, and that education will very often happen in blue states or on blue islands in red states. For the foreseeable future, loyal ditto heads will continue to drop off their children at the dorms, and after a teary-eyed hug, mom and dad will drive their SUV off toward the nearest gas station, leaving their beloved progeny behind. He wrote this as an op-ed in a newspaper. And then he said this, When they do that, then they are mine. In other words, his idea as a progressive secular professor is that he's going to spend the entirety of his educational focus reshaping the values and ideas of the children that we send to his schools, to his institution of higher education. Folks, our culture is no longer supporting biblical frameworks and biblical ideology and biblical values and biblical worship. We are living in Babylon. We're living in a place and a time and a culture that is at odds with what the Bible teaches we're to be and who we're to be. And so how in the world are we to remain faithful in the midst of that? Well, we have to remember who we are, and we have to remember whose we are. We have to remember our identity is found in a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. By the way, some of what's going on in our world today is gender fluidity and changing identities. You can be who you want to be, you can decide what you want to be. Why in the world are we talking about that with regard to children? Do you know why we're talking about that with regard to children in 21st century America? Because that's always been the tactic of the enemy. The enemy has always tried to destroy the hearts and minds, worship and worldview of the children in its culture. It was taking place here. Did you catch this? I want you to to notice a couple of things. The first is that the chief eunuch changed the names of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What was he trying to do? Change their identity. He was trying to take them from being a people who identified with the God of the universe, the one true God, and change their identity to be people who identified with the the religious deities and the idolatries of Babylon. On top of that, while it's not absolutely certain, Daniel and his three friends were put under the chief eunuch. Which means Daniel and his friends may have been made eunuchs, in part as part of their re-education and retraining plan in Babylon. In other words, mutilating and marring teenagers. Why? For the sake of having their, uh, their idea, their worldview, and their worship changed. I just want to tell you, what we're seeing today, and types of laws we have to put in place, or we're seeking to be put in place, the conversations we're having, the headlines about all the gender fluidity, and all the things that are going on, puberty blockers, gender transitioning surgeries for minors, all of those things that are going on, that is a, it is a wing of the progressive, secular movement in our country that is aimed at destroying the worldview and destroying the worship of children in our country. Why? Because if you can destroy the children, if you can get their mindset and their values and their ideas, you can get them. Not just get them for five years, but get them for a lifetime. So how do we combat that? How do we as Christians navigate the world in which we're living? We do what Daniel and his three friends did. We remember who we are, and we remember who we belong to. We remember who we are and whose we are. Folks, Daniel did not 
forget that his name meant God is my judge. Neither did Azariah, Mishael, or Azariah. Their names reflected their identity in a relationship with God. And they didn't forget that. They didn't, they didn't lose that sense of who they were and who they were supposed to be. They held on to that. They managed that. They, they lived in that. And, and I want you to think, where did they get that from? I, I mean, where did Daniel get the idea that he needed to pray to God? Where did he get the idea that he needed to resolve to obey God? Where did that come from? He's probably a 14, 15, or 16-year-old boy at this time. Where did those ideas come from in his life? How in the world, and by the way, he lived it out. I mean, we read about him being in the lion's den when he's probably in his 80s or 90s. How did he remain faithful in Babylon so long? I think it's probably because his parents told him who he was in light of their relationship with God. It's likely that Daniel and his three friends were born during the last revival that took place in Judah under King Josiah. King Josiah led a series of reforms, and it appears it's possible, very likely, that Daniel's parents were of the kingly tribe. Probably all three of the, all four of the boys came from the king's line, Hezekiah's line. And so they had parents who taught them who God was and what, how important God was in their lives. And so Daniel and his three friends, even though they were exiled, even though they were put under a training mechanism there in Babylon, even though they spent three years learning all the things that the paganism of Babylon wanted them to learn, Daniel and his three friends did not forget who they were. They didn't forget their identity was in Christ. They didn't forget that they were, that they were found in God. They didn't forget that they belonged to God. They didn't forget that God was the one who was ultimately in charge. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember whose we are. So parents, it's your job to raise your kids. It's not the school's job. It's not culture's job. It's your job to raise your kids and it's your job to tell them who they are. It's your job to help them understand who they are. Not only biologically, but also help them understand who they are spiritually and in relationship with Jesus Christ. And folks, let me just say this. Moms and dads, grandparents, if you don't tell them who they are biblically, nobody else is going to. Culture's not going to share that with them. Culture's not going to defend their biblical values. We have to be the ones to do that. So why are we living in a world that is going all different directions, seeking all different identities and claiming all sort of experiences and things that people can do? Why are we living that way? Because people are longing for peace. About five years ago, I preached a sermon series on biblical sexuality. And one of the sermons I preached dealt with gender dysphoria. I couldn't preach that sermon today. Not because it wasn't true then, but because culture has shifted so far from the way I applied that sermon. Today, it's just vastly different. Why are we we watching these things take place? Because folks, the people that are living out their identity struggles, they're looking for peace, they're looking for affirmation, they're looking for acceptance. They're looking for some measure of help and hope. And they're hoping that if they just shift this part of what they think, if they just embed themselves in what their brain says but their body doesn't, that they're going to find peace, that they're going to find joy, that they're going to find some kind of fulfillment. It's no different than what alcoholics do. They drink to numb what's going on in the inside. It's no different than what drug addicts do. They take drugs to try to find peace and, and find help and find hope. It's no different than what... Pornographers and sex addicts do. They do those things to try to find peace. And here's what I want to tell you. If you're in the room today and you're trying to find peace anywhere other than Christ, you won't find it there. At the end of the identity nightmare, gender dysphoria and all of that, transgenderism, there's no peace. 
Because Christ isn't at the end of that. At the end of alcohol, there's no peace because Christ isn't at the end of that. At the end of pornography or lust or immorality, there's no peace because Christ isn't at the end of that. Drugs don't bring you peace. Folks, if you want to have peace, if you want to know how to navigate what is going on in the world, you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here in the room and you're trying to figure out, how do I make sense of this and I don't have peace and I'm trying to figure all this out, you need to meet Jesus That's the only place. It's the only way you're going to have hope. That's what Daniel and his three friends understood. They understood that their identity was found not in Babylon, not in what the culture would tell them about themselves, but it was found in God. And today we get to know that through Jesus Christ. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. When that happens, then we have an opportunity, secondly, to resolve to obey God. See, Here's the reality. We're standing at kind of an, I don't know if I would even call it an inflection point. We're standing at a point in, in, in American history where, you know, Christians are going to go one way and the world's going to go a different way. And what we do and how we act and how we behave is going to stand out. That's just, that's just the way it is. Because we're not walking with and in line with the values that are around us. And no matter what happens, our obligation as Christ followers is that we must resolve to obey God. Not the patterns of culture. Notice how Daniel did this. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or the wine he drank. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He went on to the chief of the eunuchs and said, Listen, the king's table, the king's food will defile me and defile my friends. Here, give us this test. Give me vegetables. And water. And that's what I'll eat. And I don't want to eat the king's food. So Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. Scholars are divided as to exactly why the king's food would be a defilement. Some have suggested that, it was, that the, uh, the food was offered to, as sacrifices to idols. Which would have been defiling. So if that was the case, that might be it. Others have suggested that all of the food, whether vegetables or water, would have been offered to idols. So it might not be exactly that. Some scholars have suggested the reason uh, Daniel didn't want to defile himself with the food is it was served on the instruments that had been brought from the temple in Jerusalem. And so in mockery and in a statement of control over the people of Israel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was serving his food, his meat and his wine, in the instruments that were intended for, for biblical worship. Some have just quite simply argued it this way. Daniel didn't believe that eating the king's food would be a defilement because it was... Nebuchadnezzar's food. And he was simply saying, that's not my king. My king is the one who gave us fruits and vegetables. My king is the one who gave us water. My king is a different king than this king. In any case, Daniel said, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to resolve no matter what happens in my life to obey God. I'm going to have values that that please him. It's interesting That Daniel would make this decision to not defile himself about this issue. I mean, think about all the things he was going to learn. He spent three years learning all of the the expectations of what it meant to be a thinker and a philosopher and a magician in Babylon. And where he chose to plant his flag and say, I'm not going to defile myself, was in the place of food. Why in the world would he do that? Well, I just want to remind you, Satan's temptations haven't changed. Okay? How did he get Adam and Eve in the garden? With food. How did he get the people of Israel in the wilderness? Tempt them not to trust God? 
with food? How in the world did he try to tempt Jesus in the wilderness? With bread and with water, with food. And so nothing different is happening here in Babylon. He's trying to tempt Daniel and his three friends to defile themselves with food. Because defiling yourself in one little way might mean you'll defile yourself in bigger ways down the road. Now, I'm not here going to be legalistic and propose a Daniel diet that we all have to take. There's wisdom there, right? I mean, we should eat what God makes. What God makes, vegetables and fruits, are better for us than what we, what we kind, of, uh, kind of put all our, our stuff into and make for, for, uh, for ourselves. But nevertheless, Daniel chose not to defile himself with food. It's a picture of being obedient. No matter what the cost. No matter how simple it was. I think there's another implication that's here at stake. We know the book of Daniel for its wonderful stories, right? The, uh, the, the three Hebrew children, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace. We know it for Daniel in the lion's den. But I want you to get this. Before the test of the furnace and before the test of the lion's den was the test of the food. The reason Daniel and Hanani and Mishael were able to remain faithful in those big tests was because they remained faithful in the small tests. It's because they resolved to obey God no matter what it meant. Christian, that's going to mean a lot of things for us living in Babylon. To resolve to obey God means that you and I are going to have to proclaim and practice biblical truth in a world that denies it. To, to resolve to obey God might mean that some of us at some point in the future will lose our jobs because we are holding to biblical values rather than values that, that abide by the agenda of our culture. Believe it or not, it's already happening. Baseball players, major league baseball players, who simply spoke out against a particular type of, of a pride campaign or event, spoke out against it, one pitcher in particular spoke out against it, then apologized for it because of all the pressure, and then lost his job anyway. I mean, that kind of thing is happening today, and it's going to continue to happen. As followers of Jesus, our resolution needs to be to obey God, regardless of what happens in our culture. We need to be resolved to obey God. Now, how do we do that? How do you and I, in the face of all the shifting cultural trends in the face of all the wickedness and paganism that surrounds us. How do we keep faith? How do we obey God? Here's the third thing that we've got to do. We must relive our worship and our worldview and our practices and in our habits. Regularly, in an ongoing way, you and I have got to live out our faith. You and I have got to practice in liturgy. That's our worship practices. And practice and lesson, that's what we understand as far as our worldview. We've got to practice those things over and over again in order to remain faithful. You know, I know Daniel was doing this. Here's how I know that. Why did he have to go? Why was he cast into the lion's den? Does anybody remember? Because he prayed to God three times a day, every day, and everybody knew it. Daniel didn't learn, watch this, he didn't learn to be faithful in Babylon. He learned to be faithful before he went to Babylon. He couldn't go to temple and practice worship. He couldn't gather with the people of God in, in, in 
worship ways when he was in Babylon. He did have gatherings with his friends. You see that as you read through the book of Daniel. He and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were constantly gathered together. They were, they were fellowshipping together. They were holding one another accountable. They were encouraging one another. They were praying for one another. We need that as followers of Jesus. We need to relive and practice our habits and, 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 our, and our faith-filled worship. We need to get together. Next week, we're going to get together several times as Baptists and do what Baptists do. We eat food. You know that? That's what we Baptists do. We've got a Baptist breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning. And then at 6 o'clock in the evening, we're going to gather for our church picnic at the Watson stage. There at the Wilkes Community College. We're going to gather and eat. Why do we need to do stuff like that? It's not because food inherently helps our faith. And we're going to talk about a food practice that will help our faith. It's because we need one another. We need to be around other believers. And in Daniel's situation, he prayed regularly every day because his mom and dad taught him to pray before he went to Babylon. His faith was built up by the regular practice of living out his habits and living out his worldview consistently and faithfully. Folks, that's exactly what we need to do. Why do we need to do that? See, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, you could be a cultural Christian. You could gather at a church service once a week, once every couple of weeks, and you could go about your daily business, and the values that you had and the values that you acknowledged at church were not altogether that different from the values of a coworker or from the values of the organization that you worked at. That's, that's what we used to live in. Folks, that's not the world we're living in today. Aside from significant, specific exceptions, we're living in a world where the values that you and I have as followers of Jesus are distinct from the values that are present and declared and promoted and praised in our world. The reason we need to gather regularly for Christian worship, the reason we need to gather around other believers is because we need to remind ourselves of what it means to be followers of Jesus. We need to do that over and over again. Think about this with me for just a second. If you come to worship every Sunday this year, it'll be 52 hours, give or take how long I preach. 52 hours that you're giving, you're giving. And not everybody will do that. I won't even be here 52 Sundays in a row because of travel and some other things. 52 hours against all the other hours. The media, social media, talk radio, music, all the other things of culture are speaking into your life. Why do we need the gathered uh, body of, of worship? Why do we need to be around one another as Christians? Why do we need discipleship groups and Sunday school classes? Why do we need those things? Because folks, if we don't have those things, we're going to begin to look more like the world, believe like the world, think like the world, and act like the world. And it's no longer that that's okay. Those values that are in the world are in complete odds with what the Bible teaches and what the Bible explains. And we need the gathered body of believers. We need regular worship. And particularly, we need that as moms and dads with the kids that we have in our homes. Where did Daniel learn how to have faith? He learned from his parents. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah learned from their parents what it meant to walk with God. One of the things that has, has disturbed me as a pastor, and I've watched this over the years, is how many parents say things like this about our kids. I want my kids to be well-rounded. I want them to be successful. I want them to do well in school. I want them to have all these extracurricular activities. 
I want him to do well in sports. I want him to, you know, be able to hit a baseball or kick a soccer ball or shoot a basketball or play music and all these things. And by the way, I'm for all those things. I'm a sports nut. We do sports at our house, all kind of things that we can do. But a lot of those parents, a lot of those families, here's what happens. They don't stop believing the Bible, but they stop gathering with the church. And when they stop gathering with the church, they miss opportunities to have their kids Learn what it means to walk with God in faith. Watch this. Every gathering missed. Every song not sung. Every sermon not heard. Every Sunday school class missed. Every spiritual practice ignored is a missed opportunity to guard and protect oneself against the cultural values and morals that will shape you and your children passively if we don't actively pursue Christ. Folks, we're no longer living in a world that we can treat it as You know, the culture around us is kind of benign, and it's just there. And, and, you know, if they get a little bit of this or a little bit of that from culture, it'll be okay. And we're not living in that world anymore. We're living in a world where from Disney to all the streaming networks to television sports to politics to school system to the higher education system, it is aimed at reshaping us. It's aimed at developing liturgies Worship scenarios in our lives as humans that turn our hearts away from God and and turn our hearts away from following Jesus. Why do I want parents to be here at church? Why do I want their kids here to be at church? It's not because of some legalistic standard. You've got to be at church so many Sundays in order to be faithful. Not that at all. It's because I talk with the adult parents whose children have wandered away. I talk with the adult parents who sent a child who had normative faith Basic faith in Jesus off to an institution of higher education that indoctrinated them away from faith. And now their adult children don't believe in God, don't walk with God, don't go to church, and their values are completely different than anything they heard growing up. And I hear the pain in their hearts. And I pray the prayers with them that their children will come back and that God will reach them. I'm burdened for them. So what does it mean for us as parents? What does it mean for us as families? Folks, at the very least, at the very least... You ought to have your kids in as many Christian activities at church as possible. Sunday school, discipleship groups, VBS, 10 hours this week. 10 hours. If your kids come all five nights of VBS, it's 10 hours. It's 10 hours that Disney's not getting a hold of their minds. 10 hours Netflix isn't going to hold any of their minds. 10 hours that other aspects of culture and an opportunity for your kids to hear about Christ and meet Jesus. It's an opportunity for you as parents to to put your kids in in practices that help shape faith, like trail life. We've got some folks in our church that are part of that. And and what they do, it helps embed Christian values and principles over and over in the life of your children. Why? Because we need to relive our worldview and our worship and our habits and practices regularly. At the very least, moms and dads. And dads, you ought to take lead in this. You ought to have family worship. Before you go to bed at night or when you wake up in the morning, you ought to gather around God's Word, open a passage of Scripture, and read it. Say, I don't know how to preach it. I don't know how to teach it. Well, trust God to work. His Word goes out and doesn't return void. Just simply read God's Word. Our families, uh, we went through the book of Romans in our devotion. We're now going through the book of Psalms in our devotional time. Gather and teach. Read God's Word. Pray together. Let me tell you, if you don't, who will? If you're not going to embed Christian principles in life for your children, then essentially what you're doing is you're throwing them to the winds of culture. Let me give you a hard one, okay? I'm telling you, you have to do this. 
But think long and hard before you send your child off to a secular progressive university. Think long and hard about that. Daniel and his three friends went to a secular progressive university. And they remained faithful, but only because they were grounded deeply. If you're going to send your kid off unprepared to go to college and university, then send your kid off to a Christian college. Send your kid off to a place where, where at least the values that are espoused at Christian colleges and universities might support what they've learned as kids grown up. Why? Because it is our obligation to regularly relive our faith and practice as followers of Jesus. If we don't, if we don't as parents, if we don't as churches, if we don't as followers of Jesus today, then what we're doing, we're throwing our kids and our grandkids and ourselves to the winds of culture. And the winds of culture are not going the direction that the Bible teaches us to go. What I love about how, how Daniel applies this here in the text, his resolution to obey, his reliving his practice, it, it had to do with this incredible act of simplicity. He said to the chief of the eunuchs, he said, listen, let me have vegetables. And, and that word is a kind of a far-reaching word. could mean fruits or even grains, possibly even bread. Let me have what's made from the ground and water. Test us for 10 days. And if we're better off, then let that be our diet so we don't defile ourselves with the things that, that are the king's food. And so the chief of the eunuchs gave him, gave that, gave him that test. They were better off. And he ended up changing the diet of all those that were in the, the king's training regimen. Simple act of eating food or eating the right things instead of the things that defiled them. And, and I think there's a picture there. I think there's a picture and an invitation for us. Because that's exactly what God does in inviting us to know him. He invites us simply to be in relationship with him. And he'll walk with us through whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through, whatever we're navigating. And he invites us to do that in the glorious picture of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you, if you would, for, for a moment, pick up the, the elements there and just kind of pull that tear tab back where you can get the bread. I want you to think about this for just a moment. James K.A. Smith made this observation in his, uh, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. He, he said that when Jesus instituted the covenant of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, there in the Gospel account, he didn't invite his followers to eat vegetables or drink water. He invited them to eat bread, which humans had to make. And invited them to drink wine or juice, which humans had to be a part of making. In other words, here's what God does. He comes down on our level. And in the most human thing possible, which is eating food, he invites us to remember him. He invites us to remember that it was on the cross that Jesus' body was broken so that we could have forgiveness. So that you and I would know who we are. We're people that God loved so much that He would die for us and suffer for us so that we could be in relationship with Him. It, it, the Lord's table reminds us that Jesus shed His blood, shed His perfect, pure, priceless blood so that your sins could be washed away, so that you could enter into a relationship with Him, so you could find peace, so that you could find your identity, know who you are, know who, whose you are, know who you belong to. Jesus did that for us. And every time we gather as a body of believers, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, here's what we're doing. We're remembering who we are because of what Jesus did. We're obeying Jesus 
We're, we're being faithful to him. And we are reliving our habits and practices as followers of Jesus. In some way, I think as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's an act of cultural protest. We're saying, this is who we are. This is who we belong to. We belong to the one who gave his body for us. We belong to the one who shed his blood for us. And he's going to be the one that we follow. If you're not right with another person, if there's an issue that you need to get resolved, it would be appropriate for you not to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're here and you're not a Christian, it is definitely not for you. This is a meal for those who are part of the family of God. So if you're a child in the room and you don't partake, I want to tell you something. Uh, you can come talk to me. I'd be happy to tell you why you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper until you're a follower of Jesus. But better yet, talk to your mom and dad when you're leaving here. Say, why couldn't I eat that bread and drink that juice? And it's an opportunity for your mom and dad to tell you the gospel and tell you why it is that you need to be a follower of Jesus before we partake. Wonderful chance for you parents to be evangelistic. I'm putting you on the spot. Hopefully your children will put you on the spot as they walk out of church today. Share the gospel with them. Invite them to receive Jesus, follow him as Lord, so we can be a part of the family of faith. I'm going to say a word of prayer over the, the bread and the juice, and then I'm going to give you a, a specific invitation as we close out after we take. Let's pray. Our Lord God, thank you that in your son Jesus, we know who we are, that we're sinners who have been forgiven by the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Savior. Lord, thank you for suffering on our behalf. Thank you for suffering so that we can obey you, so that we can be faithful to you, even in the midst of the cultural depravity that surrounds us. Pray, Father, for the one or several in this room that have some things that need to be cleansed. I pray that this act of faith and symbolism would be an act of repentance and confession, where you cleanse and forgive. Pray that it would be an act of renewal and bringing us as your people closer to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the body that was broken, for your blood that was shed so that we could be forgiven. In Christ's name. Jesus' blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. Our sins could be washed away. We're thankful for his forgiveness. Let me speak to you from my heart for just a second before we close out. I'm going to ask if you would to stand. The invitation is, is pretty specific and straightforward. Here it is. Some of you in this room may not have peace. Uh, somebody, as they left uh, our worship service at 930, they're struggling with some things. I'm going to meet with them this week. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't have peace. Maybe you don't have Christ. Maybe you're not sure about who you are, what your identity is in Jesus. I'd love to talk to you. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do, if that's you and you need to talk about your own soul and what's going on in your own life, will you take the tear tab, put your name on it and the contact information. I'll touch base with you. We'll talk about your faith. We'll talk about where you are. Try to help you find faith and peace. Here's the other thing. In just a moment, as we sing our invitation hymn, I'm going to come to the altar and I've got some people I'm going to pray for. Because there are folks I know that grew up in church, no longer in church, no longer call themselves followers of Jesus. Some of you have children and grandchildren that have drifted and wandered, and you're concerned about them. This altar is an opportunity for you to pray for them. I'd like to join you in prayer for them. So if you want to take the tear tab that you have in your worship guide and put their name on it, hand it to me as you walk out. 
I got several from the earlier service. I'd be happy to join with you in praying that God will bring them back. Why do I say that? Because, folks, God works through the power of prayer. One of the glorious truths of the book of Daniel, I won't preach the sermon, but you read the book of Daniel. Daniel prayed. And God worked when Daniel prayed. God works when we pray because he is inviting us to participate with him in the work of redemption that he's planning to do anyway. So as we gather, as we close with our invitation, you come join us in prayer. Let me pray for those that we're concerned about and then we'll give the invitation. Father, you know the friends and the neighbors, children and the grandchildren, that when they were 5, 6, or 12, they heard the message of the gospel. Maybe they responded to it positively. Maybe they didn't. In any case, Heavenly Father, you know where they stand. You know the ones that have drifted. You know the ones that I'm concerned about. You know the ones that moms and dads and grandparents in the room are concerned about. In a culture that is moving so far and so fast away from biblical values, Heavenly Father, you're the only one that can bring folks back to you. And I pray that you would. I pray, Lord, that as we gather in a moment, we pray that you would hear our prayers. That you would draw that son or daughter, that child, that neighbor, a friend or co-worker back to you for your glory and for your name's sake. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 